I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's Thursday, September 16th. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. My guest today is Adam Tews. Adam teaches history at Columbia University and directs the European Institute at that same institution. He's written a handful of books on modern economic history. He's also a contributing writer to The New Statesman and has written for any number of notable publications, both in Germany and here in the U.S. Adam also has a Substack newsletter, as everybody seems to, including myself. His is called Chartbook, where he writes about economic data and other stories. You can check that out at adamtoos.substack.com. That's adamtoos, T-O-O-Z-E, .substack.com. Today, he and I talk about his newly released book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. It's an astonishing tale. And without further ado, here we go. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get to shutdown, I, I read a piece that you wrote recently. You talked about the need to provide aid for mm. Afghanistan, an extraordinarily difficult decision given that the Taliban hosts some of the world's leading terrorists, and yet 14 million or one-third of the population is either starving or close to it just a disaster of epic proportions. How would a humanitarian aid work, given that obviously politically the U.S. can't be involved? Biden would get even more grief than he's gotten now. Well, I think, I think there are two types of problem. First of all, there, there is indeed the humanitarian crisis that you refer to. But what I've been trying to highlight is the fact that this is compounded by what you might think of as a more conventional macroeconomic crisis. This is a country with a huge trade deficit that needs to fund itself through external sources just to continue the ordinary flow of imports that sustain whatever modern economy there is there. And the chronic structural humanitarian crisis, the fact that it's simply a desperately poor society which has seen quite rapid population growth in recent decades, is compounded by that because in the real nightmare scenario, it's the relatively affluent people in the city that start bidding for the resources against the desperately poor people in the countryside. And so we need to be thinking both about, as it were, a more IMF-style program and a more United Nations aid-type program at the same time. 
The way in which the United States gets involved with this, I think, is just a huge question mark. And the simple answer may be maybe this isn't a job for the US. The military intervention there was carried by the US, but it was never exclusively an American uh, business. The, at the height of the surge, tens of thousands of NATO soldiers were there. The sorts of amounts of money that we're talking about are, in fact, quite modest. They're easily within the range of any number of G20 members to provide. And the less political this is, the better. And for this to get sucked into the toxic soup of American partisanship at this moment would just compound the, the disastrous situation that we're in. So my sense would be this really isn't America's problem in the first instance. America should probably stand back, facilitate where America really can't entirely avoid involvement is because a very substantial fund of, of Afghanistan's foreign exchange reserves are actually, as most people's foreign exchanges, at least to some degree, in the New York Fed. And they are essentially impounded there. And if Afghanistan had to pay for its imports out of its own money, it could if that money was in fact accessible to it. But that itself poses huge problems for the US. So there might need to be some sort of financial architecting under which that money under American control acts as some sort of collateral, enabling other people to to step in. I don't think in the first instance, one should think of this as a key priority for the US, but the US should adopt a kind of position of benign neutrality or encouraging neutrality. I totally agree with your diagnosis that like for the Biden administration, it would poison. Let's get to the books. You wrote not the first draft or the second draft, but probably the penultimate draft of the history of the great financial crisis, 10 years after the fact. You wrote Shut Down, your new book, How COVID Shook the World Economy, one year after the event. What was the difference in terms of writing the books? Were you just racing to, to finish Shut Down? Was it harder to research? Were you, did you have the access you wanted to policymakers and all that? It's sort of a chain reaction, to be honest. You know, shutdown is to an extent an effect of crashed. I started writing Crash, the book about the 2008 crisis, at a point at which we thought we had closure, temporarily at least. This was around 2012, 2013. Obama had been re-elected. Mario Draghi had settled the Eurozone with whatever it takes. And so I embarked on that project in the what turned out to be vain belief that that things were settled down. And so, you know, the conventional historian's assumption that you can begin telling the story. And I ended up finishing the book in the middle of the first phase of the Trump presidency. So it ended up being a book which wasn't so much an anniversary of a crisis 10 years before, but a history of a 10-year crisis that hadn't finished yet. Right. And people at the time joked with me, you know, you're going to have to write endless new editions. And they were right. That's essentially what's happened with shutdown. I was more or less willingly, I mean, in the end, very willingly enrolled by all of the folks that I'd been in touch with writing Crash, that I'd been in dialogue with. And we all found ourselves like everyone else, but in our own way, in our own niche in the kind of, you know, the world and in the intellectual sphere, struggling to try and make sense of this sequel, this next chapter in the narrative that I had pulled together in Crash. So one grew organically out of the other. The problems were a more intense version of the final stages of finishing Crash. But this has, in a sense, become my main preoccupation as a historian right now. And I would insist that it's still a historian's take in the sense that I am really preoccupied with this question of what it means to live in history and to try and think it as we go along. And that's, you know, shutdown is a sort of explicit wrestling with that problem. Tell us about that. How do you wrestle with the problem? Well, one is that you, you have to get used to a certain sort of risk. 
I mean, this is high stakes. It's not like these are life and death decisions or billions of dollars, <laughs> um, right. but intellectual risks in the sense that, you know, you, you write something today that will be published the day after tomorrow, and tomorrow something could happen that would render it obsolete, irrelevant, just wrong. Mm-hmm. So you embark on the same wager as everyone else, basically, now, without the privilege of hindsight. There's a question of access. There are certain things that you simply can't know close up. And, you know, people at the Fed will be happy to talk to you about stuff that happened in 2008 and much less happy to talk to you about what they had to do the day before yesterday, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. We are party pre, even more to an even greater extent than, you know, when we're looking back. You have to check your emotions directly. In the last couple of weeks, I've been writing about Afghanistan, the political economy of our pullout from that and the implications of strategy. And I found myself really wrestling with emotions of rage and frustration and humiliation and disappointment, really quite powerful emotions that had to be tamed. So all of, all of that intrudes. And you do have to, as it were, engage in this projective exercise of trying to imagine yourself, you know, if you're writing very close up, even getting to the point of imagining what will this book read like when it's released in September. Mm-hmm. You know, you finish the main work on the manuscript in February, you come back to it in May, then you have to let go. But in that conception, you have to, as it were, projectively move yourself forward and then triangulate back from there. So in February 2021, you imagine what March 2020 will look like from September 2021, a point you're not yet at. And, and that exercise is, is, that's a bit mind-bending. Crashed took me a month to read, and I'm ordinarily a fast reader, but it was extremely, for me, extremely complex and yet extraordinarily rewarding when, when I had finished it. it. It's really a major piece of work. This one as well, terrific, by the way. Thank you. And I wanted to ask, you had basically the great financial crisis and the shutdown, if you will, were caused by the evaporation of credit. How did the evaporation of credit differ in crisis one and crisis two? Yeah, in 2008, the evaporation of credit is the crisis. And it's a classic real estate bubble, of which there have been many in history. It's one of the great drivers of financial instability, harnessed to the new techniques of what's called market-based finance at the heart of the investment banking system. So this is the system where banks grow big, but they don't fund themselves through private deposits. They just borrow money short term on money markets and roll and roll and roll and roll. That was 2008. 2020 has a rather different structure in that this isn't a crisis endogenous to the financial system. You could say it was endogenous to capitalism or modern society, but it isn't to the financial system as such. The shock comes from the outside. And what it triggers is something which on the face of it is even more alarming than what we saw in 2008. What it triggers is a unmanageable volume of sales in the most important financial market of all, which is the treasury market. And the US treasury market matters um, because it's giant. It's $18 trillion plus of stuff that's actually traded publicly. There's more American debt, but that's held on public balance sheets and not available for trading. $18 trillion plus of stuff that's traded. And the crucial thing about it is Not that the price of treasuries and the yield doesn't ever vary, but the market is so big that even the largest sellers can be pretty certain that their selling doesn't change that price. So you, as it were, have a freedom to act individually, even as the biggest fish, without having to worry about, you know, being a whale in a bathtub. You aren't going to destabilize the whole thing, whatever you do. 
And that is crucial to the financial arithmetic that goes on to portfolio constructions of various types. There are better quality government debt, like German debt, a higher rating, lower yield. But the American market is the one that's so vast that you can use it in this way. And that market, A, the prices started moving in really what seemed like perverse ways. They, the prices went down when they should have been going up as people should have been running into these safe assets and they weren't. They were trying to sell them. And then something even worse happened, which is that you simply couldn't transact. You couldn't sell big packets without having to haggle. You know, and if you are in the business of trying to sell four or five trillion dollars of treasuries, the last thing in the world you want to do is haggle. You know, you just basically want to hit a button and go, uh, excellent, there's my four or five trillion. Thank you very much. Right. And I was speaking to and in speaking to financial markets participants at the time, there's a real sense of trauma. I mean, I, I, I gave a talk in Hong Kong last week and I thought this would be old history. None of them would be interested in talking about it. We talk about China, geopolitics, but no, they, they wanted to relive the moment when... They couldn't sell $2 billion of treasuries and stumbled out of the office in disbelief and then looked up at the high rise that their apartment was in and just went, if I can't sell those treasuries for a price I can predict, what on earth is my apartment worth? Because <laughs> if you can't sell a treasury, you're no longer certain of being able to sell anything. Right? This is the thing which is basically like cash. It's like looking at a banknote, literally, and going, oh, my God, maybe it's not a banknote. So this is a dizzying phenomenon. And for it to happen in the US Treasury market, this is game over. And we know it's as terrifying as this because you see what the Fed did. They used the same techniques. It was many of the same people, in fact, who'd worked this desk in 2008 as they percolated up the Fed system. But they, they were buying a million dollars of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which are pretty much the same. A second, they were buying 70 billion a day. They bought 5% of this market in a couple of weeks. So, you know, this is like nothing we've ever seen before. And it begs the question, like, you know, somebody's bicycling and then using training wheels. If the training wheels are as large as the bicycle, you kind of, but that's kind of the world that we were in, right? We strapped this huge stabilizer on this fundamental market and then walked away and said, well, nothing to see here. Like, you know, let's move on and let's concentrate on something else, Trump or the pandemic. But the aim of the book is, in a sense, to bring us back. A big part of the aim of the book is to bring us back to that moment and say, you know what? We were so close to the edge here of a precipice that would have compounded our problems so dramatically. We would have had, you know, the pandemic to deal with, the, the political kind of brain fog of the United States and the full on heart attack at the same time. And they were concurrent, right? I mean, the yeah. COVID crisis was well on. Uh, by March, Triggered this. particularly yeah. in New York, right? And then yeah. you had this extraordinary financial crisis. Were you surprised that the press coverage during that month wasn't anywhere near the state of alarm that there was around the great financial crisis? Well, I mean, you know, mercifully, in a sense, the last thing we needed was anyone talking about this beyond the, the remit of the people that did. And I'm not saying that this was deliberately covered up, but there really just was so much else going on. Right. And what wasn't happening, and this goes back to that, there was concurrence in the sense that the, the Treasury sell-off is a dash for cash that is triggered by panic. Right. But what we didn't see, and this was the nightmare of nightmares, is, and this was actively discussed in places like the IMF in the years before, is the Trump White House interfering with this or the GOP in Congress interfering with this. So we did, of course, get the, you know, the extraordinary constitutional crisis, the full depths of which we're only just discovering about. But, we, the, but Trump's populism, when it came to monetary policy, acted in the right direction, right? So 
it's a liberal prejudice to imagine that all populism is dysfunctional. At this moment, it was exactly what we needed. We needed a president who, when he looked at fiat money, said, excellent, I'm king of money. I can issue as much money as I like. I can put my name on the checks. I'd like to issue the largest amount we can all agree on, please. And that is exactly what we needed at that moment. When he attacked the Fed in 2020, it was because they weren't doing enough. We thought he might attack the Fed for helping out you know, Europe or right. Asia. None of it. You know, if it was good for the S&P 500, he was all in. What he couldn't understand is why they didn't go sooner. And in fact, to a degree, I think he may be right. I mean, if you can make a criticism of the Fed, I think they should have gone a week earlier. And it took them a while to realize how severe this was. But that's a minor, you know, you know right. one week here or there, there was no Lehman moment. That They never went over the cliff. Right. But, but that's important, I think, to recognize is that the dysfunction in American politics, which preoccupies us so much, did not have, not at that moment, in the summer, it becomes a very different story. But at that moment, they're actually positively combining in a, in a way that was surprising. Did you ever think as an economic historian that you would see both uh, major parties in the U.S. essentially adopt modern monetary theory? No, I mean, I think we should, we should be cautious on that. I didn't expect them to do what they did, which was, you know, 1.9 trillion, you know, two, well, in fact, well over two in the, in the first instance right. out the door as quickly as possible. But then I also never thought I would see a Thursday morning, 8.30 report with four and a half million people signing on for unemployment benefit in a week, six and a half the following week. What was it? 30% of the registered Michigan workforce. I mean, it, the numbers were staggering, st absolutely staggering. And I, I really, I think, you know, fear is the right word. I, I just, I remember going back and forth with, with my network of people just going, you know, oh, what on earth? It was absolutely staggering. And I think that's crucial to explaining why Congress moved. A, the Republicans had their guy in the White House and he was pushing, which really helped. And B, they could see the sheer, just the unhinging of American society that seemed to be taking place. By the summer, you know, you've got Lindsey Graham pushing back, you've got fiscal hawks coming to the fore, and they don't do a second stimulus over the summer, which is one of the really more puzzling kind of what-ifs of American political history. It's surprising, you would think, because it would certainly have uh, yeah. aided and abetted, if you will, the Trump re-election campaign. Could have won the, I think, you know, if, if it's a reasonable bet that, it, that he would have pushed him over the line. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Adam Tooze. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the podcast. I do a daily political news summary or a daily news summary called News Items. And 
the month of March, I think there was a item about the repo markets every single day. I got the question over and over again, what are the repo markets and how do they work? And I can finally say, you know what? I know exactly the person to talk to about this and you can listen to the podcast and he can explain it to you. So can you? I can try. I mean, but let's say this is like, you know, this this is deep in the arcana of the financial system. That's, so right. I, That's where we want to go. I'm very entry-level wizard here, like not <laughs> deep down the line of hierarchy. I can suggest some people to you who could really take you there and also lucidly. But basically, repo is this, it's this neat little device under which you buy an asset, but you don't really have the money to buy it. But what you want is the rate of return that that particular asset offers on your balance sheet. And what you do is you buy it and then you resell it to somebody else immediately with the agreement to repurchase it after a period of time. Right. And what you do is you trade. I mean, these these trades are done on wafer thin margins. We sometimes imagine that large scale money gambling is like you putting $100,000 into the shares of Apple or something. That's not what they do. That's far too risky. So what they do is they buy a treasury which yields you know, 2.5% over a five-year time horizon. And then what you do is you fund it for the next three weeks for 2 and 4.75%, right? Right. And you make the money on the margin between those two things, plus some expectation that its value might go up in between. And the person on the other side of the trade is just as smart as you, and they're gambling that it's going to go the other way. Right. And the two of you have got like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1% of skin in the game either way, neither of you necessarily has the original money to buy the $100 bond in the first place. So you pass this risk around. And the terrifying thing about this is that you can build really large leverage doing it. When you do these trades, the haircut is the bit which describes how much of your own money you have to put into the trade. So you buy the bond, say, for $100. You pay a 1% haircut, so you only get $99 back when you repo it. And at the end of the month, you then buy it back for $99. But on, in that trade, you only have $1 of your own in the entire transaction. Right. The other person's providing the 99 Now, what's terrifying about this is that the person offering the 99 could at some point say, the next time we do this trade, and many of these trades are done overnight, you're going to have to bring $5 because I'm only giving you $95 on this. Right. Same bond, You'll only have to pay 95 to to buy it back, but you are going to have to come up with five times as much capital as you had in the transaction the day before. Right. And that's what blows the system up in a panic, is that the haircuts rise. And so people who've been operating, you know, a billion dollar book on a hundred dollars of their own capital suddenly discover that to maintain that book, they need two hundred million dollars of their own capital. And they don't have $200 million. They've only got $100 million. So they can either shrink their portfolio to $500 million mm -hmm. or go looking for the $100 million. You can't find the extra $100 million in a moment of panic like this. And of course, this is happening to everyone who's playing the same game. So you all suddenly try and sell half your portfolio. right? And then the losses start piling up. And then the haircuts rise even more. So I described it in the case of Lehman. Lehman had four or five hundred billion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities funded like this almost on a daily basis. Right. So it's as though a big bank took deposits every day in the morning, and every day at the next morning, people took their money out and decided on the spot whether they were going to put it back in again. Right. 
And in the moment of the panic, that huge $400 billion money says, you know what, we'd put it in JP Morgan instead this morning. And at that moment, the bank fails. And that's what we were seeing in the repo market in March 2020, is that hedge funds in particular, which had piled large portfolios of treasuries on very thin margins, with the price fluctuations in the treasuries and the difficulty in transacting in them, panicked because it wasn't obvious that they would be able to carry those positions forward with regular funding. And if they couldn't, they would end up booking huge losses. So the first thing the Fed did before it actually started buying bonds was to simply say, we'll do repo for everyone. Don't worry, we're available. If you've got a big book, you can't really fully fund. You can sell it to us. As long as you understand you have to buy it back, then you can sell it to us again. But we'll provide that liquidity funding. That started second week of March on a really huge scale. And how was its impact immediate or was the panic such that it took much longer to alleviate? It took two weeks. It's not really until 23rd, 24th, 25th, that weekend, that Monday, that you really begin to see stabilization. That's when the equity market bottomed out as well. In that first week, they were scrambling. They were making repo announcements in, in, at off times of the day. Right. Normally, you make repo announcements on a calendar, that, on an hourly calendar that everyone understands because they set up their trades for the day. Right. And you don't want to be making new announcements about repo facilities you know, late in the afternoon when people have you know, set themselves up earlier in the morning and can't take advantage and then feel disadvantaged. And they were just scrambling money out the door in that second week of March they don't really get a grip on this until it becomes clear that basically they will buy in unlimited quantities, not just repo. So help people fund it on private balance sheets, but actually take it off their hands and put it on the Fed's balance sheet. How did Chairman Powell, Fed Chairman Jay Powell's response to the COVID crisis differ, if at all, from Bernanke, Paulson, Bush? It's very much in the same iteration. I mean, as liberals, we have to come to terms with the fact that the two most dramatically innovative Fed chairs are both self-identified Republicans appointed by Republican presidents. So there's a little bit of a tradition here at this point. The scale of Powell's intervention is unprecedented. And what Powell did starting in that last week of March is to make clear that they would backstop various private debt markets as well to an extent that even Bernanke had not done. So the sort of inhibitions are really coming down. In the end, the Fed didn't actually end up buying very much of that debt. But there was at least an implicit suggestion that they would, if necessary, buy even junk bonds um, or funds which held large portfolios of junk bonds because they don't. The the Fed's problem is it doesn't want to get entangled too directly with private credit, in part because that's where the real, real huge profits are made, massive speculative profits, and B, because you end up picking winners and losers, and they don't feel that they're legitimated to do that. And if you take a broad brush approach, you're going to end up with lots of really bad stuff. And if you're more selective, you're really discriminating. So they don't want to do either. And Powell's Fed lent as far out the window as it could. And it also worked much more closely than we saw with 2008 with Congress in the sense that There was this extraordinarily within CARES, nested within the CARES Act, there was this, in a sense, utterly artificial structure in which Congress announced that it would appropriate funds if necessary to indemnify the Fed, which is sort of like announcing that the left hand will work with the right hand as though they weren't actually already joined at the hip anyway. And then they, that would leverage the Fed's resources as though the Fed couldn't leverage anyhow it liked. But I think it sounded good to Mnuchin. 
And it sounded good to Congress that they were, as it were, you know, providing the Fed with a, not so much with a big bazooka, but with some giant nuclear deterrent, essentially. <laughs> That's a great part in your book where you quote, I can't remember who it was, but he said it, was the, it really was the merger of monetary and fiscal policy on a really unprecedented scale, right? I mean, or unprecedented fashion, I guess. But the funny thing about it is, yes, de facto, it's undeniably the case. Looking at it from 30,000 feet, that's what's happening. It looks also like the coordination we've seen historically in like the World War II period and its aftermath. And it's functional. But if you ask the people themselves, they'll deny it. <laughs> and it isn't simply cynical. They're not just lying. It's that that isn't why they acted. And the astonishing thing is that the central bankers right now would rather have you believe that what they do is worry about inflation and, on the other hand, financial stability, than have you believe that they are willing partners in a cooperative effort with the fiscal branch of government to backstop the macroeconomy. That, for them, is more taboo than publicly admitting that they bought the largest wedge of treasuries ever bought with a view, what, why? To stabilize the financial markets. That, that doing that has the effect of liberating fiscal policy is, well, you know, a nice coincidence, mm -hmm. which you could read any way you like. But I couldn't possibly admit that what I'm doing is backstopping the fiscal apparatus. It's a really, this is where I get this idea. I take up this idea of my brilliant friend and colleague, Daniela Gabor, who talked about a revolution without revolutionaries, or I call it like a Frankenstein politics, because it isn't, it isn't coherent. It's a sort of deliberate refusal of the logic of the moment. So this is where this hesitancy about MMT, they, they would, you know, they really will deny <laughs> that that's what they're doing. Because MMT is a bit like, you know, it's a bit like sex ed. It's like, you know, this is how it works, boys and girls. Men and women become naked, and then this goes there, and that goes there, and out comes a baby, right? And it's like, that's kind of not the point. And MMT shows you it and goes, yeah, that's what happens. This goes there, and that goes there, and that's what we could all do all the time. And if we wanted to make babies all the time, that's what we would do. And, like, and everyone kind of goes, you know, we know how embarrassing it is. It's like, yeah, you're kind of missing a crucial point here, which is it's all very complicated and taboo and entire anthropologies are founded on this. And there's this thing called law and the Bible and the Quran. And, you know, but yeah, basically that goes there and this goes there and out come babies. And the central bankers are like priests in this system. Right. Like they can't deny that, yes, that goes here and that goes there, but they will totally deny it. Have you been able to talk to Jay Powell? No, I've spoken to people who have spoken to him. Right. And I wouldn't want to take, I mean, like, I genuinely have too much respect for his time. Right. I mean, right. you know, focus. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I mean, the guy is a glad hander, and that was crucial, right? But, you know, spend your time talking to Congress. Yes. And that's been crucial. I mean, this is the thing about the moment that we're in. It's like where Powell is distinctly different from Bernanke. I said earlier on rather glibly they're both Republicans. But one is a super wonk who, you know, rather peevishly, this is Bernanke said, I didn't leave the party, the party left me, you know, whereas Jay Powell is in the trenches of the crisis of the Republican Party. The reason why he's in the job that he's in is that in 2011, he was doing the rounds in Congress, helping the Obama administration, explaining to Republicans why, in fact, yes, not to raise the debt ceiling and thereby to default on the US treasuries would actually kind of really be a big deal. 
Like, and when we say big deal, like a big, big deal, not, <laughs> not just, you know, sticking up the Democrats and owning the libs. This would like be actually kind of a catastrophe. Right. And Republicans are Republican. We don't want to do that. And it was that that earned him the Obama nomination to the board, right? Because they found somebody they could trust that could actually work this crucial divide in American politics right now. Right. And his ability to do that is, is extraordinary, right? You know, whereas somebody like Geithner, his Rolodex is full of Wall Street. Powell is a is a political animal. And the same is true of Christine Lagarde in Europe at the same moment. We're in a post-wonky mode in central banking right now. We need operators because the system has become political operators because the system has become so political. I sort of apologize that we're not talking about the EU and, and China and emerging markets and stuff, but I, I want to stick with the American thread largely because our listeners are mostly Americans. Sure. So we get May, the crisis is sort of abated. The tide has gone out a bit. And we enter into the summer, which is a key part of your narrative. Take us through what changed in the summer of 2020. Well, I mean, like everyone else, I think I was trying to grapple with, and this is where this real-time history writing thing got, for all of us, pretty pretty serious, right? It became obvious that, you know, as much as we thought we had seen the dramas of history earlier in the year, we were now plunging into a drama that had a more specific American dimension and that was rapidly escalating to something, you know, the most serious test of the Constitution, arguably, since the New Deal era, probably, and the struggles around the New Deal, perhaps even more grievous than that in its direct assault on basic mechanics of the election. And the book is trying to get a handle on that and its implications for the wider world and its implications for America's role as a hegemon, fundamentally. Because, right. you know, if you come out from the financial side, that's so manifest. And that, that first bit of the book is, in a sense, acknowledging that the Fed still acts that role. But then something something extraordinary was happening in American politics. And I'd started thinking about this very intensively when I was writing about 2008, because at that moment of existential crisis for the United States, the Republican Party as a party machine is also AWOL, right? So you have the Bush administration, you have Paulson and Bernanke as crisis fighters, but their partners in fighting the crisis in 2008-9 and riding out the after effects of the Lehman disaster are the Democrats in Congress and the Obama presidential campaign. Right. And they cannot really get to the Republicans in Congress. And McCain appoints Palin as his running mate and makes this strong populist move at that moment. And ever since, I've been profoundly puzzled by the way in which the GOP, which historically is the anchor, if you like, of the conservative, business-orientated understanding of the logic of power in the United States, like it or not, it has that kind of coherence, is losing that, that capacity. And, and that's what we saw on a truly spectacular scale over the summer. So we see the deadlock over the second stimulus, which could very well have delivered Trump the election. We see the decision to pivot to an essentially denialist position on the pandemic, even as it's happening. We see an extraordinary escalation of American hostility towards China. And then overarching all of this, this incredible superheated culture wars, really, I mean, it's back to American carnage and the Miller kind of reading of America's situation, supercharged by the enormous mobilization around Black Lives Matter and the struggle to rescue from that that horror a progressive agenda that would actually you know address this running sore this profound wound in american history 
And instead, we go to Mount Rushmore. And I'm, I'm as resistant as anyone to the idea that using fascism and the Weimar Republic are a useful way of understanding America's dilemma, because I just think we've got our own problems. Let's focus on those. We don't need to be thinking about Germany at this point. But there was almost a willful adoption of that sort of, let's call this an American fascism, or a pose at least, right, at that moment. That was really that was really stunning. So that so the book is trying to grasp that and then to figure out how power positions itself in relation to that. You know, one of the things that you see is that big business positions itself antagonistically, essentially, to the Republican Party. And as we have now discovered in recent days, you know, in a sense, the hard, hard, hardcore of power, the American military are doing the same. You have said that predictions of American decline overlook the importance of the dollar and the extraordinary power of the U.S. military. What makes you so sanguine about American military power? Do you think it can adapt to future warfare, or is it stuck in a old model, if you will? Oh, sanguine would be the wrong word, I think. Sanguine. Um, well, no, it's right. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, I think, I think what we have to reckon with is, uh, I did this piece for the New Statesman in the aftermath of Afghanistan, in which I was trying to tame my own churned up feelings. And in a one direction for me was thinking about the economy of Afghanistan. The other one was to stand back and say, okay, what can we see American elites doing? Whether or not they will succeed is another question. Whether or not they're going to overcome, you know, the formidable antagonists that they face, another question. Whether or not the Pentagon can overcome its just chronic inefficiency and, you know, the boondoggles and the military industrial, all other questions. But if we are asking ourselves, is at least here an elite organizing itself to face these challenges and to mobilize mighty resources, incomparably larger than those of any other state, towards this purpose? And does their intention seem to be to withdraw or is their intention to lean forward and try and shape the future? I think the answer is very clear and it has been clear for almost a decade now, which is that American strategic planners envision America as locked in a fundamentally, historically significant, we're talking Wagnerian proportions here, power struggle with China. And they are going to do their level best, for better or worse, whatever it is, with all of the, the snafus one would expect, to counter that. And we should, of course, not forget that those are present on the other side too. You know, no doubt the Chinese have their own problems with building aircraft carriers and, you know, unmanned vehicles. And no doubt they've had their own crazy experiments with robotic tanks and whatever. The fact we can see ours doesn't mean that the other people don't have them too. But that, I think, is the clear intention. For me, the, the question is, how at this point are these elite groups articulated with each other and articulated with the broader American polity. And in the extraordinary revelations about General Milley's activities during the Trump administration, it's quite clear that they are not articulated increasingly with the position of the elected head of state. In fact, in certain moments, they become quite clearly disarticulated from it, in fact, oppositional to it, to the extent that mill-mill relations from the Chinese to the Americans will be activated as a way of trying to stabilize the situation. And that's you know, that's where the book ends. I mean, it ends up by saying that the American nation state may be done as a vehicle. And it's not even obvious to me where the progressives should come down on this, whether we should wager on reconsolidating a state that could fall prey to Trump 2.0, or whether in, say, as we see in climate politics, the move is often to say, well, forget it, it's done, right? The federal government's never going to deliver credibly on climate, but New York can and California can. And those are huge pieces of the pie. So let's get on with it. 
That's where the people actually live. They don't actually live in Nebraska and Oklahoma. That's just the crazy composition of the Senate. In practice, they live on the coasts. That's where the economic resource is. That's where the technology is. Just drive it from there. And that's fine as far as it goes. And when you're talking about climate policy, but when the issue is who controls the nuclear button, like it's um, It's a little more problematic. (laughs) It's more hair raising, a little more hair raising. Yeah. The way these two crises worked out is that the people who had the most money benefited the most, even though arguably they put much of the rest of us at risk by their actions. How long can that be sustained without a really a populist uprising? Not just, uh, you know, the election of Donald Trump, but something well beyond that. We don't know. Pitchforks. We, we don't know. I mean, it is surprising how often if you sit with serious investors, the question comes up. So the fear is clearly there. And what is striking about 2020, and it's worth emphasizing this, and it's a complicated point to make, so it's kind of important to be precise about it. It is true that the wealthiest benefited most, but then, as, as it were, they had most chips in the game. So it's not surprising that they should. And it's also the means that we use to stimulate the economy, all this gigantic liquidity, structurally privileges them because that's where the money flows in first. Right, right. But that, in a sense, is the old story, the familiar story, and this is just another iteration of it. And it's depressing and worrying that this is the case, and it appears to be self-reinforcing. But the countervailing force that we saw, and it's not really countervailing, but it's a story that runs alongside that, is, I think, an elite learning. And we see it in you know, the, the attitude of the Biden administration which is, you know, we actually do have to do something for low and middle income Americans. And in that sense, the most radical thing that happened in 2020 and 2021, and the numbers are coming out now to show it, is that poverty actually fell in the first half of 2020, at least, as a result of the unprecedented distribution of federal cash. It turns out that if you send cash to poor people, they're less poor than they were before you sent them the cash. That doesn't fix the structural disadvantages that caused them to be poor in the first place. But we did, did actually discover that you can alleviate that acute and immediate suffering. And on a large scale, I mean, especially the Biden rescue plan, the $1.9 trillion in March, that's about as stripped down a targeted welfare redistributive program we have seen in recent history. There's not a lot of pork on that at all. It really is going to middle and low income families. So I think that, in a sense, is the learning. And you don't, you know, I'm sure you know, I mean, if you talk to people in the Biden administration, they'll tell you flat out that's exactly what they are doing. And they are trying to learn the lessons of the 2009 moment when there is a general sense, I think, that that is not what happened, right? So we did the big bailouts, the capital market stabilization, and then the support for average Americans, low-income Americans, was modest to insignificant by comparison. And so there is learning here, even if it doesn't change the structures. And that may be the answer to your question. That's how this proceeds, is in terms of, as it were, these very biased, these very lopsided ad hoc interventions, and the most dramatic thing from a European point of view that is exposed again and again in these crises is that America, not only does it not have a healthcare system in the sense of a national healthcare system, it doesn't actually have a national unemployment insurance system that really deserves the name because the compromise done in the 1930s conferred power to the states and then the South means there isn't really a system. So the federal government and Congress has to act, which is why CARES had to be as big as it was. And that, I think, is symptomatic of where we go forward. Like, So for the failure to do structural change and because of the long 
entrenched structural disadvantages that are built in that go all the way back to the early 20th century. And if they have one driver, it's race, right? The fundamentally at the heart of this is, is white resentment towards black welfare recipients. There is no structural reform, but what we get instead is very large-scale ad hoc crisis fighting. All right, we're going to cut it off here, sadly. Um, we've taken too much of your time as it is. I urge our listeners to buy Adam's new book, which is available right now. The book is entitled Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. It's a terrific read. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. This is the last episode of the News Items podcast. I want to thank the people at The Recount who made it work and who made it better, especially Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and we thank him as well. I'll be starting a new podcast in a month or two or three, probably two or three. Subscribers to the News Items newsletter will be kept apprised of developments. Thanks to everyone here at Factory Underground, where we recorded most of the podcasts. Thanks as well to my friend and co-host, Rebecca Darst, who made the podcast smarter and more fun. And thank you for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.